From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Kasim Bentley is a San Francisco comedian and a San Francisco native. I had read in an earlier Chronicle profile that Bentley grew up in the Lakeview neighborhood, the son of a Muni driver. But when I heard he was putting out his first comedy album, I wasn't prepared for the raw San Francisco-ness of the experience. The album is called Lakeview, out May 3rd on the Blonde Medicine label. Recorded at the Setup Comedy Club in San Francisco, it includes stories about the Five Fulton bus line, the Saramani Mall, the Oakland 12th Street BART station, and there's a very strong track called I'm From Here, half comedy, half rant about the changes going on in the Mission District. Good time to tell you this is going to be the rare explicit The Big Event podcast with some profanity ahead. Kasim Bentley is not Jim Gaffigan. Here's an excerpt. You guys don't understand it. You guys walk around eating your gentrified burritos. You know, it's like burrito with pad thai in it. And then there used to be culture. Now it's just Chase everywhere. It's a Chase bank, you know what I mean? Burrito shop, Chase, you know what I mean? Fucking like community center, like a Mexican Chase running around here. El Chase running around, you know what I mean? And you guys have a good time eating your tapas, being assholes, running around drunk at night. Then you run the bar at one in the morning and then shit running around. But see, I was from here. I know when the mission was scary. It was scary and sexy at the same time. Like a real Latino woman, you know? You're running around. You know, the city with no pockets on his jeans running around, you know what I mean, running around. And he just... The album Lakeview is a good sampling of Bentley's skills. The first two tracks feature his crowd work. He gets very direct with one of his patrons who interrupts him. And the end of the album, a seven-minute track called Keisha is a poignant, hilarious, and kind of a beautiful story about a little girl riding a bus. It shows Bentley's strength as a storyteller, which he says he got from his Muni bus driver father. We also talk about the old Bay Area TV show, Home Turf, the time Bentley has been spending in Los Angeles. He worked as a staff writer on Moshe Kasher's show and why he always wants to come back to the city, even though parts of it are getting harder to recognize. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Kasim Bentley, welcome to the Chronicle. Welcome to the big event. Uh, we're in the basement of the Chronicle. You, you seem charmed. You seem to like the space. Yeah, I really like the space because I used to be an intern at the Bay Guardian. So when you would just be around a publication, you just like start. I'm a snooper. Yeah, uh, I'm a snooper. So like, I if given a chance, I would just look around. So anytime you see like archives and. You know, old photos, and you know, and especially of San Francisco. I, I'm just, I'm like a kid in a candy store right now. This is, this is wild. I feel right. like, you know, like in your high school, that I like the like the janitor. There's always that joke that janitor lives in the school, yeah, and like yeah. lives below, like in the basement next to the radiator. I feel like right now, like the janitor, but a real cool janitor. I yeah. do. This is cool. I mean, it's not that bad. It's cool in here. If there's an earthquake, I don't mind dying with you here in Herb Kane. I'll die between two white guys. You know what I mean? I've done it before. I did improv. You know what I mean? What's going on? There's a Herb Kane bust here. We'll get that photo on Twitter. Actual size. Actual size. <laughs> well, I'm already laughing. Um, really excited. 
I heard you had a new comedy album, so I was excited about that. Then I heard it's called Lakeview, so yeah. I'm like, this is going to be a San Francisco album. Then I listened to it. In addition to laughing my ass off, this is like the most San Francisco comedy album. I counted references to Ceremony Mall, yeah. The Five Fulton, yeah. 12th Street Oakland Bart. Yeah. Um, very, very San Francisco, very Bay Area comedy album. I've always liked albums that, whether it be music, comedy, poetry, that either I talked about where they're from or, you know, maybe it was, a, I don't know, something, your family. I, was, I did music journalism when I was in my 20s, and I always was drawn to people who would bring you into their world, especially where they're from, especially if I've never been there. Yeah. So I said if I, I was going to do my album, I want to always call it Legview because I just, Legview shaped who I am. It's yeah. a, you know, I'm a pretty bubbly, you know, I'm a pretty energetic guy, but I, but inside, it's just like, inside is like Legview. Legview is just kind of just weird, and I would say cold place, but it's just a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's kind of, it, it's a it's a really interesting still gray neighborhood in the in San Francisco, but it's very interesting when you get in it because it really shows a group of people who love San Francisco the most but are on the fringes, mm-hmm. you know. And I feel like that's how I am kind of like sometimes in entertainment where it's like I'm an, yeah I'm a, I am an interesting person, but I'm really at that point where I'm trying to make my way in because when you're in Lakeview, you're almost on the outside, yeah. and then until you get to West Portland, you're really getting into the really into the, into the city, so. I I like being there because, you know, it's you got the biggest mix of San Francisco because you're right at the border of Delhi City, so you're next to Filipinos. Yeah. And Filipino people are interesting and they're weird, you know what I mean? Because you know, and you're next to Ceremony and Westlake, and then you get close, then you're closer to Excelsior, (laughs) which is like really weird because like when you live in Excelsior, that's where you see like like really just. Rough and tumble white people, you know uh-huh. what I mean? Like white guys with the Sons of Anarchy kind of mustaches, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like you don't know if he's like, but he could work at Coldwell Banker. Who knows? You know what I mean? <laughs> or he or he killed a banker in '88. Who knows? You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. And then you get to West Portal, where you get the town and country, and you get the in the and then for but in Lakeview, I lived on a street <laughs> where you were either on one side the projects, like and and we lived at the top of the hill. And the other side had the Cosby Kids because they're your Ocean View. Ocean View, it's all Lake View, but it's like on one side it's more Lake View. Near City side. College, um, Ingleside, near City oh, College. Oh, my. The M. The M is your line. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. M is M. The M is the line. The the tracks are the veins. You know what I mean? That's <laughs> the whole, it goes to the heart. You know what I mean? Yeah. And right, of Lake View. And that's the whole thing. The, the, when you think about Lake View, you think about the M Ocean View. If you think it's the K, you're on the wrong side. The K is not even a real line. It's not. It's just it goes to Ocean Avenue, and Ocean Avenue is just nothing but shops and a Seven Eleven, which it's great, and Beeps, which is the most Lakeview thing in Lakeview. Yeah, nominations for the most San Francisco thing in San Francisco, Beeps Burgers. Yeah, which it's got that awesome sign. We have yeah. actually photos of that sign from like the seventies and eighties. Can you? Down here. Can we? I mean, there's a love. If you could send it to me. Yeah, as a birthday present, or yeah, or just whatever, whatever you feel. If I had thought of it ahead of time, mm-hmm. I would have gotten a print of it and had it framed for you here. So I was, I'm, I'm going to get that for you. Beeps Burgers. I'll find as close to like an OG '70s '80s one as I can find. I was trying to get the photographer to meet me out there. Oh, you could tell him. You could still tell him. Just go to the meeting place and go. Hey, can we go to Beeps Burgers? I bet oh. the photographer will do it. Yeah, because I because I needed because. 
and you never know in San Francisco, like what when what's gonna become a high rise. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's out of nowhere. What happened to Beast? You know, it's a condo now. Just just some context. Uh, Kasim is going to meet with the Chronicle photographer after this podcast is over. Oh yeah. And, and I loved you. You gave a list of places to meet, and it was like. It was like a Lakeview All-Star, including, yeah. I think, a mural. There's yeah. a mural. There's the Lakeview mural. And I usually don't like the cheesy, I'm in front of a graffiti mural, like it's home turf. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's something from the 80s. But <laughs> like, but I guess it, there's this, I, I'm trying to really put it down for my neighborhood. And yeah. I say, if I'm going to sit in front of a gosh darn Lakeview mural, and not a good one. It's not that, because I did graffiti. I'm great. I'm I'm a visual artist. I would you know, but the Valero station that that wall right the Kugna, that I guess for something I guess I just want to photograph, you know. And yeah. so let's do it. But all uh, right, well you'll, cool. you'll talk with the photographer. Yeah. Thank you for the home turf drop, um, Dominique De Prima. All time, I want her on this podcast. If so. you get Dominique De Prima, yeah. I will bring a, a dozen roses. She's in L.A. She's, she's what? Yeah, you're you're down in LA. We'll talk about that. But but or you've been in LA. No, she's down in LA. She was working for radio down there. I think she was doing um I don't want to get it wrong, but it's either like community radio or public radio down there. And yeah. if I go like cuz I have to be back down. I'm actually going down to do press in a few days. But like to move back down there if I'm going to find her. Cuz I just think Let's that- let's explain this. Home turf um, back in the '80s, you're you're younger than I am, mm-hmm. but home turf kind of like probably lined up for both of us. Back in the '70s and '80s, there was a lot more community programming. I think right. it was mandated, so there's less channels. Cables becoming a thing, and you'd have these community-minded programs. Yeah. And the best one was home turf, which was you know dun 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 dun. dun. <laughs> Welcome back. Now we're going to check out the making of a masterpiece in the streets, Bay Area style. And then Dominique DePrima would come on. She's this awesome local host, and they would have everything from break dancers to rappers to white kids on their BMX bikes yeah. doing tricks, and it was all positive. It was and, all positive. Yeah. And, not, and not syrupy sweet. It was like an interesting public forum for area youth, you know? Yeah. And it was earnest programming. It was authentic. But Dominique De Prima, man, just one of the best hosts. And I remember when I was in high school, they were going to bring back home turf. Yeah. This was my first taste of Hollywood. Yeah. Right? I went to go and audition for it to be an on-camera personality. And I got, I thought I killed it. Yeah. But I think I was too fat. To be like, what? I, I they chose two people where if you saw them, like, oh, I get it, yeah, I get it, perfect teeth, jaw like symmetrical. One was a model for a spree, yeah, a Jerusha. I remember her name. I remember her. Um, the other dude was just like, like you know, you know, remember like on the Cosby Show, like Theo would have like a friend or like or one of the kids would have. Like, this is my new boyfriend, and he comes yeah. in. This is that perfect, a mix of just good curly hair, not too much activator. You know, what I mean, he just comes <laughs> in, just like the beginnings of a mustache. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah so I, I remember, yeah, home turf. Love the home turf detour. Mm-hmm. Um, wanted to cover a few other things though. Your dad was a muni bus driver. Yeah, my dad um, was a muni driver for for as long as I. 
as long as I, yeah, as long as I know. A Cu- couple questions. What were his lines, and was he funny? I've Some of the funniest people I've met have been Muni bus drivers. My dad is hilarious. My dad, I, I'm only doing a, when I tell stories, it's only an homage to my dad, because my dad would tell these hilarious stories from Brooklyn, because he's from Brooklyn, and they'd be funny, they'd be violent, violent stories. I yeah. mean, now I look back, it's like, why, he didn't do anything, but he used to, he, you know, guess how they would arrest you just by being an onlooker or sure, something? Sure, sure. But my dad was a really funny driver. He drove the 22, he drove Mission Street buses. It's 22, 49, 14. Uh, 14 Mission, that's... That's some drama on the 14. He didn't have high blood pressure until he started working 14, he said. <laughs> yeah. And though he said the, uh, the the doctor, he didn't have his uniform on. And the more he kept talking about distress and couldn't understand, because my dad was a big guy, but my dad, didn't have, he never had high blood pressure until he started working 14 for a year. Yeah. And he said, what do you do? And he's like, oh, well, I'm a bus driver. He said, yeah, but he's like, do you drive, like, what line? He said, the 14. He's like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I get a lot of guys muni, and they all have start getting hypertension. I wrote, I used to ride my dad on fourteen. I would see, like you know, he would, and I would see the amount of stress to get cursed out in Spanish, yeah. and to try to translate the cussing out and all that. And not just one person, just that because my dad. It was, now I will say this: my dad was one of those people bus drivers that act like it was his bus, like he drove it home at night or something, you know what I mean? Like, and parked it. My dad did, he had all the badges, he was a really good driver. Sure, sure. And as a guy who's learning how to drive right now, I get why he was stressed, because he was really, he he really loved his job. Yeah. And my dad, but he was hilarious. We would go back to Patrero, and I would go to the bathroom, and I was like, you know, I was always kind of a bigger kid, taller kid, so I could just go by myself. I'd come out, and my dad would just be in the other break room, Having people dying, dying, and that's why I knew that I understood that he was funny, and I knew understood that I would try to be funny at school. But I was, I knew I was funny, so because I come from a funny family. My mom's really funny. My sister, yeah, she's cool, right? And I understand, like, and my my dad would tell stories, and he would interject these jokes, but he wasn't like a jokey joke guy. He just was very descriptive, and he had his own POV. So, but on the bus, you have you. Have, I think that mini drivers, especially black mini drivers, are really the funniest people because I, I you know they understand what people go through because you to be an adult on the bus a working hardworking adult on the bus or anybody it's just a tube of hate mm-hmm. <laughs> a tube of hate yeah you're just on there you're cramped up you're squished yeah. up next to somebody your fat's on somebody's fat and <laughs> you're smelling someone's like lack of deodorant or what they had for lunch and you're just sitting, or you're like an old person, and you get to some person who's gotten to the age, they're not elderly, but they're to that point of being adult. They're like, screw it. I'm sitting here in the front. I don't give a damn who you are. And you, so my dad would just like be funny, but he wouldn't get on the mic. He would, he'd be funny enough. He was kind of not loud, but he could, he could get loud. Yeah. So he'd make people laugh. And I really saw that I was, my dad wanted to be a comedian, but he was too afraid. He was. He told me that after he found out I was doing stand up. I'd been doing stand up for years. I wouldn't tell him, cause I just didn't. I just wanted to be great. Cause I was always. I, I was good when I started, but I got. I wanted to be great. How, My, how did you start? I mean, it was. Is there like a Tony Sparks brainwash luggage store story? What What was your What was your genesis? Here's the story. Uh, when I was I was at Upward Bound, 
and I was a high school educational advisor. So I had these youth, we're in LA at a college tour, and I'm up with these students, and they're like, and I was like, what do you guys want to do with your life? What do you want to do? I'm just kicking it with them. And what's going Edwin Lee, great comedian, filmmaker, Edwin Lee, shout, shout out, Edwin Lee, uh, said, I want to do stand up. I was like, oh, and it just popped in my head because I had been wanting to do stand up, and because I was funny, I would, it was almost ruining my job. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I, people have, people who know me from Upward Bound, it was like, I couldn't, you couldn't take me serious. I was serious, but you guess I was a very funny dude there. So I said, okay, just so we can get, go to bed. I know you're all dreams. His seemed the most plausible and realistic. Mm-hmm. I will take you to an open mic. Now, here's what I'm taking a, at the time, a 16-year-old Chinese boy <laughs> that looked like he was 11. <laughs> like, I'm just keeping it up. Here, meet me on, I found a luggage store. Yeah. Meet me on 6th and Market. Yeah. This is, and this is also like the fall, the beginnings of a San Francisco fall, which is really just, it's almost like, it's all too, it's almost like post-apocalyptic, you know what I mean? Yeah, and Sixth and Market is not where I'm taking a 16-year-old looks a Yeah, what today's yeah, what, what, first? What, that's what, not my first stop. No, with yeah. I, with I with I know about now, <laughs> and especially being in relationships where I've taken care of children, I should have been arrested. You know yeah. what I mean? I, how do you tell your mom, yo, where are you going? He, I don't think he told his mom. Yeah. So he goes down there. I'm late. I'm running late because I'm in a meeting. I'm like 15 minutes late. So I get there, and all you 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 were just like on the corner, you would see. Crackheads, homeless people, like like uh like you know kind of like a level C level pimp, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the eight ball jacket, and get scared tourists and a Chinese boy, next to a taqueria, and so we go up there, and he's uh, I see Tony Sparks, and I never met him, and so Tony Sparks, legendary, uh, he's a comedian local, but also a producer and produces the I don't want to say bottom level, but your entry level open mics and if no one else is laughing at you tony sparks is saying you're going to be the biggest star and laughing for you he's a he's a figure in comedy he's a figure in he's a figure in bayer comedy it was a figure in new york comedy that's people forget about tone tone is really his advice has been integral in so many people's careers that i think and and god love him because he's hosting my record release party next week he's like yeah because without him i wouldn't be how i uh Anything I've uh, the success I have, I think, is a part of. Anything that's a failure in my career, he has no part of. Yeah, yeah. Because like he gave me the keys. Like so, I go up there, I take Edwin up there. Edwin starts trying to do comedy, and he's like, "It's funny," but I'm watching him, and so I can start going Edwin to shows because I want to make sure he was safe and I wanted to hang around and see. All that. So I'm not saying a lot, but I'm getting to meet people and people realize I'm funny. People are just assuming I did stand up. But I was like, oh, no, nah, man, I'm just thinking about it. Thinking, this went on for months, <laughs> months, until I was at the brainwash. And this is way back. This is when Tony was like a buck 80. You know what I mean? It's out there. This <laughs> yeah. is a while ago. Shout out to Tony Sparks. Right? Yeah. So he's there. And Tony had seen me just having a lot of fun. And he said, man, look, I'm going to tell you something. And I, look, I don't want to be mean. You got to stop coming around here. And I was like, what? Is it like, because I've seen guys like you. Like you either gotta sh- you know you gotta either gotta do it or don't do it because it's just it tears you up, and if you're gonna do it like don't or don't do it here, but if you're gonna do it, just do it. So I came back the next week and I had with my girlfriend, ex girlfriend Janelle, and I go up and right before I'm going up, some guy who she used to work with at Caminar and San Mateo or whatever was hitting on her, and he did comedy, but he wasn't that good. 
Yeah. So I still did really, really well. I could have cr- demolished, but I was focused on that. But Tony saw it. He saw it, and he's like, oh, man. And uh, so he just started taking me around. I, went, I was going to this place, a little theater, which if anyone knows our little comedy theater in the Tenderloin, I, like – People, it's the great shout out, Alma. I love, I love it. It's, it's, it's you a com- LOL comedy. Theater? No, it's I called, it's called our, our little comedy theater. It oh, seats right. about twenty people. Okay, it's, it's a mixture of African shop. It looks like a store. It looks like a fancy storage room, mixed with it in the back, and not, which is not really in the back. You just take one step. It is a theater. Yeah, which is next to the bathroom, and it, <laughs> it looks like a scam. It looks it. <laughs> But Alma, I give her all the love in the world because she runs everyone. You see comedy clubs closing all all the time, performance spaces like all the time, and like and she runs it. She as a five hundred one c three. She funds it herself through grants and her own money, and she has an African hair braiding shop and a hair salon around the corner, and she funds it all the time. Now she can't do shows as much as you want to all the time, but she still will. Throw a show for me or some other people, yeah. and and it used to run all the time. She used to let. She gave me the keys to it. So you were you were I think thirty then, right? And uh, and then was it pretty quick that you're like, okay, this is what I want to do, or this is what I want to be my focus, or did that? Come I wanted I wanted to do stand up, but I also knew I wanted to do something eventually, like broadcasting, because like I like radio, I like pod, I like I, before podcasts there were just like radio shows, internet radio shows, and I would get invited on them, and I would always have fun. But I wanted to also do something for television. I, I just saw myself. I could I could see it, but I couldn't see me because I never saw like a big dude, black dude, just hosting. Now now I can see Cedric Tanner. He's got you know whatever. They all give it in shows. But I want to do stand up. That's what because I got out of art. I got out of art. I got out of journalism. I focused on that. But I was also heavy into nonprofits. So it wasn't like I was like divided. But I needed. I wanted to make sure I was doing a good job. And all, so, but I decided then I wanted to get deep into comedy. This is what my passion. This is what my calling is. This is what I always knew I kind of wanted to do in my life in some way. And so I got really deep, and I started started doing shows and shows and shows, and making a name for myself. You know, while not making a name for myself, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if that makes sense because I wouldn't go to the punchline for years. And that's where you go. That's the gold standard. But I guess, yeah. but I would do like my man Kiko. I'm doing my American release party with Kiko. I would. I started doing this thing, speech therapy comedy. I thought it was a couple years in the stand-up, and they just really, that is one of the most amazing shows in San Francisco because it's been running for more than 11 years, maybe closer to 15 years. Self-produced by Kiko Breeze, great guy from Daly City, uh, also real Frisco'd out. He was from Frisco, too. But just that feeling of Il Parada over here on 16th in Patron, you go on a Friday night, it was a monthly, you know, and sometimes, I think at one point it was bi-weekly, but it would just be... 150 people, mm-hmm. 200 people, gets crushed. And I would just go out there to jokes, stories, riff, all that stuff. Then we, you know, then I had a show with him at a biker bar in Excelsior. Nice. Pissed off Pete's. <laughs> R.I.P. Pissed off Pete's. Uh, Pete Wickham, right? But do it there. I remember I, remember I was doing a show with my boy Jabari, Jabari Davis. One of, the, one of the best. I mean, I can't believe he stopped doing comedy. I remember we were doing a show and a fight broke out between a Latina or maybe a white chola. <laughs> How rare is that? Right there, it's like getting chocolate with the cornflakes. You know what I'm saying? Like they're real yeah. rare. Next to a very, very, very angry Samoan woman. And 
got stabbed with uh, oh. a very sharp eyeliner pencil. Oh, wow. Still did the show. We still kept going to show going <laughs> because we, you did not want to make those bikers angry. No, no. This sounds like, like a Blues Brothers type oh, thing, you know. I Now, that was a show where I really got off because people would come see me just crowd work. Yeah. Because I would just, I would never headline. I'd go right in the middle, and I would do as much as I wanted. Usually, I'd do 15. And it would get crazy because you couldn't really do material at this place. You could. It had to be really great material. But I would just go there, and they would turn the mic up. And I would just go insane. And that's where I, I really knew that, like, it was starting to start thinking in my mind, like, yeah, like, you know, this is a great, I'm, I really love this city. And I was, but I knew in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, it, there's going to be a point I'm going to have to get out of here. Yeah. But that was years ago. And I thought that, you know, but I knew I wanted to do more. That's when I started thinking about, like, what could I do? Could I do radio? Could I do this? I, so, but yeah, doing those shows. I just wouldn't go the punchline because I was having so much fun that I knew that I was lacking as a comic too because I would see some of those guys out and they'd be such great joke writers, like just joke, joke. And I didn't really find myself as a joke writer. I felt I was a personality person. Uh, but I knew that I was good at explaining things. Yeah. So I was in the beginning trying to figure out ways to make bits, like about explaining a thing and descriptive. Because Tony gave me the keys, like, you're good at describing, like, you know, that's, he wasn't like trying to diss me. It's like you're not good at writing jokes, but you have you're like you you're you're uh, you know you're somebody that can give like you know um, narratives. You, yeah, kinda, ba- yeah, basically, but like, build, build, build great narratives. If I'm not comfortable with something, it's not gonna be great. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. I'm trying to work my way that in therapy, but I'm just trying to say like, but I saw these great people like Kamau and Joe Klosik. Joe Klosik, boy, this is a really good education like terms of comedy. One of the best guys I ever saw, uh, club comics. Mm-hmm. He would get up with jokes. Sometimes he would do jokes. Sometimes he would do crowd working. But he had his own kind of formula in a lot of way. And he would get up and he would just control and dominate the room. He could have one half of the room riffing on the other half and going back and forth. And he would tag team and ping pong, real pinball, but it was all in control. And it was so great. Comics would just go outside. Because you knew he was going to destroy. But he would also do jokes, and he had this story. They eventually got him on Comedy Central. And he had other jokes. And he, was just like, he was just somebody I used to watch, and I'd watch him and Daniel Dugar. Because mm-hmm. Daniel Dugar was like this black dude. Like, people know me for, like, the suits. So. Daniel Dugar would come to the punchline. Sometimes he'd come to street clothes, but sometimes he'd come dressed up. He would do his seven-minute set, crush. Now, I didn't know what he was like before I started doing comedy. But he would crush. I never saw too many black people at the punchline. Mm-hmm. He'd just get up. He's from... East Bay, and just smooth, and his jokes would be clean but dirty, or they, or you know, and he would leave. He'd always leave, and so I just started looking at like, yeah, like that's my. I was just coming in, and I wasn't trying to emulate them, but I said, okay, I'm gonna figure out like what I like and how to present myself because sometimes it's about the joke, but sometimes you're you're interviewing in front of people. And sometimes the way you look is 65% of like they're gonna like you in the first few, like in the, in, in, in the initial, uh, you know, as you're establishing a relationship. So I really wanted to think about like, what am I? And how do I look? And all that stuff. So what I was doing was doing stand-up, but taking my real work life very seriously. So I do stay, I was doing social work, case management, providing. So I would just really work on how I'm talking to people. Did you did did that change for you the um, the work comedy balance? Um, yeah, 
I mean, at what point did that change? Getting and, fired from an organization. <laughs> like, that's what it was. Because yeah. you know what it was? I was getting, bur- I had gotten burnt out from this one organization because things were starting to happen. Yeah. And because stand up was always, it was like stand up, relationships, you know what I mean? Like nothing came second, but it was just trying to explain to partners that like it's all, it all ebbs and flows. Like some days you're a high priority, some days you're not. But with my job, you can't say that. But I know that. When they would find out that I'm a comedian, and then it would became very awkward sometimes because I would never really take off for gigs, which I should have. I should have been like at a certain point after I got passed or this on, I should have been making, saving my time, going to LA or even going out, just testing the waters and just getting more acclimated. But I was really committed to my job. But I was really committed to my clients because my clients aren't like an audience. But I really wanted to be a great provider. Your clients. It uh, was- in social work, case management, yeah. like, you know, even with teaching, I was doing, like, you want to make sure that you're building a good rapport, but you're also keeping a certain level of, you know, your boundaries. You want to make yeah. sure their boundaries are not being crossed, but you want to say that I go a little bit further than your average you know, provider. So, because I know what it's like to be in risk, mm-hmm. and especially in communities of color and disenfranchised communities, I want I want my, re- they want the residents and clients to understand that what, they're about to embark on is going to be an arduous process but with myself there's a level of care and understanding and commitment so most of my most of the organizations I worked at really respected that but I was just tired they could tell like I, I didn't like paperwork meetings I'd be involved but it's just like there and they, I think they could tell that like my mind outside of working with the clients was in to the stars I was because yeah. I would be doing things that they hear about so what what year is this about 2000 well, shoot man i mean 2000 i mean really okay this one organization 220 2016 2016 was this one organization let me go and it wasn't i i had my fill yeah and it's just i it was and also i had gotten to the paper i had done tv a couple of times i had been pitching stuff so I was trying to make my way out, but I was trying to make my way out and not be broke. Is that is that when it you start thinking, do I stay in San Francisco or do I try L.A.? And, and how did that process work out? You know, I had thought about, I wasn't trying to, I, you know, it's honestly, it's so, I'll be honest, I was thinking about making trips down there just to see, to test myself. But after working with Kamau mm-hmm. and after meeting just, did, like, and I ran into Josh Cornbluth one time. Oh, yeah, that dude's cool. The... <laughs> the coolest guy once i started meeting people that were making uh, like marga gomez uh just other personalities especially you know they were funny i started thinking like well maybe like you could make a living and live here because because not because i'm scared i really do love san francisco a lot yeah but I, I forgot the one thing is that you need to be famous first so, yeah. you, so you can afford this, you know, astronomical rent here or if you or or gets the bay. Let's just stop acting like the rents aren't high everywhere in the sure, Bay. Act sure. like you go to Oakland. and Everyone's just living like it's Atlanta for like five hundred dollars a month. Five hundred dollars a month. You have like a three level house. So I started talking to Rooftop, doing this, started talking to other companies and just starting to put it together because my online presence on Facebook was popping. I wasn't a Twitter guy. I'm not a Twitter guy. I, it just people were, you know, and, and we were trying to develop shows and coming to light. And I, I did, it did cross my mind up to say, well, if I want to take it to the next level. So then 
I get let go from this organization. I get a temp job. And then the article came out. And then Moshe, I, I've always been cool with Moshe Kasher. Like, I, I'm good with him. I really, he gave me a break. Because my, especially with. Uh, he gave you a break with. Meaning he got his show. Yeah. And he was looking for writers. And so he messaged me. And he. And he gave me, yeah, yeah, I did it, and I, uh, I, you know, I didn't. And he hired me, and I came in as a writing team with Jacob Siroff, and I, I was happy because this comic named Caitlin Gill, shout uh-huh. out, this was a big moment in my career. She said, "Do not go to L.A. and New York," because she moved down there, but what she had, she was asked to, uh-huh. for a job, writing uh, job, acting, and the like. And she said, don't come to L.A. unless you're invited. It just makes more sense. Now, you can go down and suffer because a lot of my friends were down there. I had to read their posts. And there's something about the suffering of an L.A. LA comic on the verge or on the quest of being on the verge. Just every few days, it's just this long post. It's like live journal. You're just like, oh, God. I I did four years down there as a journalist, and we talked about this before the show. I never unpacked my boxes. I mean, like, I knew I was coming back. It was was a cold place. I felt unmoored down there. And I met some great friends, and I'm glad I went. But It's a great place to give up. Yeah. <laughs> a beautiful place. You can just get up, drink a juice, drink a matcha, look at these palm trees, and just think about, like, what is all this? You know what I mean? And be, when you're with your friends, that's great. But I'm a guy that doesn't have a lot of friends. Uh-huh. So I would just have my girlfriend and comedy. You know, and I'm good with comics. I, I can hang out. And all, but I'm not a hangout guy. I'm really, like, I'm really in the quest of, like, having a family because I really like like, I don't need a lot of interaction with people. People think I do, but I'm just, like, able to talk to people. So getting to L.A., like, I'm not – it's funny. I'm defer- desperate for attention on stage, but, like, in the, just socially, I could exist down there. But it was just that I didn't do enough work in the Bay Area to have product. And it's amazing. It was a whirlwind to get down there because I was temping at this one nonprofit, and it was – crazy i was getting i got threatened this guy was gonna like shoot me and all this stuff i was done i was yeah, i was yeah. so burnt out and it was like this housing nonprofit. so i get down to la and i'm from san francisco i like the weather i don't you know the schizophrenic weather i do it all that and even though there's like 18 black people left in san francisco you know what <laughs> i mean i'll deal i mean i know four of them most of them, <laughs> right so it's like i'm down in la and it's just like it's a huge you people don't understand that the, the tonal shift and pivoting you have to do to it, to be involved in like and not just the people I mean one is the weather you know you get acclimated to like all that weather but look man it's oppressive the sun doesn't need to be up before you are you yeah. know what I'm saying and everyone down there dresses like they're going to the airport you know what I mean like the smart person at the airport like sweats sandals da 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 everything and everyone is just but people are depressed the depression in LA because your value is based on what you're providing for a larger entity at all time. Now, we all are kind of doing that, but in Los Angeles, it's all related around film, which isn't the whole world. And, and everybody's monitoring it. That's what got yeah. me. It's like it's like the first question isn't who are you, it's what are you doing, what are you... It's like everybody's gauging where you are on, on their scale. That's how I felt. I was no. a beginning journalist down there, and I felt like, you know, there was no easy conversations it's like it's not 
I don't know. Sometimes I feel like journalism is taken seriously down in Los Angeles, you know? Yeah. Whether, unless you're discovering something like crime or something <laughs> where it's like the Mulholland murderer, you know? And you're like, oh, woo, you know? Because everything there, even when a journalist, I always think when a journalist is about to type, do they, before they start typing, do like, could this be a screenplay? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, <laughs> Dirty John. We're looking for the new Dirty John. Well, you're 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 here now, right? You're back. Well, I'm in an interesting. Or, or foot foot still in L.A. Foot still in L.A. I had to. I'll, I'll be real. This is very real. I came back because I was broke. Uh-huh. I had a bad. I had a breakup. Well, I don't say bad. I think that I'll say this. Not to put too much on it. I, the way I was in a relationship where it was, it just. It, I was a, it was bad because I didn't know it was going to happen. Yeah. And I was really, I was, I was, I was broke. I had just been, I had been doing warm up and doing other st- entertainment stuff, but the entertainment money was just dried up. Yeah. So then I was working in nonprofit in Skid Row. I guess saw someone get murdered, you know what I mean? When I was just down. And so I had this breakup like before Valentine's day and it just was like, what? And she let me stay there. For like two months and to get my stuff together but while i was down there on her floor on her couch and one of those couches that when you're sitting on it is great but to sleep on it it's like you really envy the homeless because they can sleep on glass sure. you know what i mean sure. and you're like wow you got figured it out somehow like your rem sleep is definitely different than mine so i was just getting the crap kicked out of me emotionally and so i had to leave and then i had money and i was just in airbnbs and i and at that point I was going to like just try to get a place place, which I was trying to find. But I just started like going around Los Angeles and I was I was discovering on my own. And I just some days I hated it, but a lot of days it's like it was it was it was I could deal with it. So I got a chance to come back and uh not because I could I had to come back and I got the idea to tape this album. Yeah. And with Blonde Medicine and Dominic Del Bene. I love that dude. I did a profile of him last year when he did his uh, comedy festival there. Yeah, he's like, hey, because we'd always been working on stuff because we were trying to, we were like pitching stuff and we always been trying to find a way. So he got that and we decided to make the album. So I came back to San Francisco. He said prep. Prep. Prep for a while. Like, because I had been doing like time and, but, you know, like on stage, like more than 30 minutes on it. Like, but I wasn't, I needed to like really. Because I didn't know when I was going to do an album, but I said, "Look, let me. I want to do it." Where did you record it, and uh, over how many nights? Uh, was supposed to was was supposed to record it for two nights at the setup, which is on two 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 high. That's a new comedy. Listen, well, it's it's an established comedy club now. I think now they're really. I think they actually are an established comedy club now. Uh, it was supposed to be two nights, but due to like a scheduling and stuff, it was one night, two shows, and and the great thing about the setup is that you're guaranteed an audience. And it was a very semi-eclectic, uh, multicultural audience. It was, you know, I think it was two black guys there. All right, you yeah. know, <laughs> but it was like, but it was mostly like. And a, you talked to them in the show, yeah. 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 And the thing about it was, I was gonna try. I didn't want to do this like um, album about the issues or just be incredibly topical. I, I think what my comedy can be about the base of San Francisco, but it likes a larger issue. And I remember that. I ran into a couple comics in L.A., and one time I was just talking about this guy, Little Rel, and one thing I liked about his special is that it was just very much so his world. And when you get to meet guys like him and all that stuff, or bigger comics, you start engaging about what they thought on this album, that album. And I was just trying meeting guys about who did things and where they're from, and I just got this idea of, like, as long as you frame it right, you can just be where you're from, references and all, because it's like 
um, people aren't dumb. They want to know what's in your world. And mm-hmm. also, sometimes that I'm not. I wasn't trying to do this, but sometimes people who try to build this world is that that's how people end up with the show, and it's when this a larger thing. So I wanted to have a very San Francisco album because San Francisco and and no, but eventually me. I yeah. wanted to be about myself and about my experiences, and and uh, I didn't think it was limiting. I didn't think because about with references or old stories, um, because San Francisco, San Francisco itself, uh, is very confusing to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, people, you know, depending what region of, of America you're from, like you know, New Yorkers generally hate San Francisco because it's kind of like a condensed New York, but we walk too slow. And like the pizza socks, you know, whatever. Well, you talk a lot about San Francisco in this album, and and I like it. It's a it's it's a grab bag of your skills because yeah. it begins with crowd work. Yeah, I mean the first uh, almost ten minutes is crowd work. Yeah, and it's very funny, and then it ends. You talked about your dad being a storyteller. Yeah. it ends with a seven minute story, Keisha, on the five Fulton on bus five Fulton. <laughs> about this girl confronting. A couple of passengers in a very San Francisco, you know, gentrification tinged scene. Yeah, that's funny, but also has some meat to it. Yeah, yeah. That's I. That's uh, if anything with a story or a short bit. I mean, I want to in, inject some sort of social social commentary because that's how I grew up. My dad, uh, community community activist. Uh, you know, worked you know worked with youth. My mom was a award-winning social worker. Uh, you know, she teaches about mandated reporting right now. My sister has a you know she's a works for the Department of Justice, but she has her own nonprofit. And so I just know that's the uh, that's the there's there's a responsibility with my family to talk and work with people who are you know need representation. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it's not forced. I, it's my interest. I mean, I'm a nonprofiter guy. You know, and I think that, but it gets, those are things that interest me. So I, I'm a bus rider because, I, like I said, I'm like learning how to drive right now. And I was just like, I'm always on the bus. You said that earlier, learning how to drive. And I made a mental note, like learning how to drive a car or learning yeah. how to drive a bus. Oh, car. Bus is okay. next. <laughs> it's right there. Tractor, bus, plane, everything's there. So is it like a Class C license? <laughs> yeah. So the Class C license I'm getting right now. I'm getting the right. gloves, you know. So yeah. Like, yeah. Right. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty. It's pretty cool. But as a rider, you get to see... These cross sections of society gets kind of intertwined, you know, and you understand that more people when they take Muni or the train should really take their uh, AirPods out and really look around and understand that, you know, the the Bay Area uh, can sometimes feel right now is like it feels like it. You know, it's funny you you could feel as though it's it's vanishing, you know. But the the thing that I like to focus on is that it's true that certain communities are being, you know, this is mass. There's a mass exodus happening. But I like to kind of look at the people who are the survivors. Yeah. Everybody who lives here, natives also, should find a way, car, bus, whatever, and really just drive around the city because it's not just about Mission Street, Gary Street, Market Street. It's really just getting into these little nooks and crannies, and because you get to see the survivors. Yeah. Like I've been really like un, when I have the time to discover neighborhoods, I just kind of never just got into, like the avenues, Chinatown, you know, like even the cuts, like in like the Excelsior, and you know, and just trying to walk around, like what's down that alley, this and all that, and you just find small shops that's still around, 
like and you get to meet the people and I'm a talker but not like not like as compulsive or not but like but it's like I really get the get the the history and what I find is interesting about San Francisco is that there is a sense of pride uh, that you only find in San Francisco that is basically it comes from it comes from knowing that um, as technology has had a, a stronghold about the redevelopment of it, but mm-hmm. there's some places that technology can't touch, and there's just and with that. Uh, you get to have people who can retain their culture. Uh, you know, a lot of these people have generations of families, and they're appreciative. You know, they're finding a way to get, you know, to keep you know their house and their and their and their story. Yeah. You know, and it's funny about that because like I like to hear that in a city. Like I like to talk to both sides of the coin. You know, I mean, it's like sometimes I'll do shows at the Battery. And you're around like the rich guy, like yo. What do you do? Well, I own the color green. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I have a couple steaks and water. You know, right there. You know, like we're making this new digital water. It's an app. You know what I mean? It's like whatever. You know, like there. But then you meet these guys that are like on who are, uh, you know, are have an uh, an interest in like where San Francisco is and where it is and it and what what uh, and you try to educate them about, you know what. Uh, what the people need and you know some of these guys man they're trying to figure it out yeah they know that their gifts pawns in the game and they don't want to get people kicked out they don't want to tear down projects you know they want to they want they see this there's there's what these redevelopment companies in what city hall and not there's there are these plans for the next 20 30 years to turn this into like this digital metropolis you know what i mean and they're tr- and some of them are fighting a good fight. Most of them are people of color, and you know what I mean. I find it and it gets woke white people. You know what I mean. I said, but I, I mean, they, but they don't have enough of an army. So, with that being said, uh, that makes me want to engage more with just finding about San Francisco before it all changes. You know, because we see all these like Salesforce buildings where it's like a, a Blu-ray on top of a building. It's like really like. It's 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 amazing when you're driving in and new bridges and, and that's supposed to happen. We can't. It's like when, Los Angeles taught me like one thing that was sad about Los Angeles and it's still sad is it's a very old city, and you get downtown and it's got all this you know the staples and da 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 and but when you get still right around Los Angeles downtown Los Angeles is still skeezy Hollywood still oh, skeezy yeah. you can just almost feel the STDs on the on the ground <laughs> you know what I mean you can't walk around. that's why I'm with sandals oh no I'm wearing socks you know then you get to like East Hollywood and you know you're down there and then you get out to Watts and you know there you're just like this place is just you know because it's it's just like it's like you could it's becoming like old uh cement you know what I mean on there it's just kind of gets old and weathered and cracked and you come to San Francisco you know it's just you got wind seasonal change you have you know you don't have to feel like threatened by time yeah that's the crazy thing out here I feel like I can just kind of like watch the minutes just go slower and I can think more there it's just like you're just you're just talking to the sun all day you know what I mean well, we're glad you're here. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm glad. And I like, I like too, that uh, we're going to close up because oh, I, yeah. I've just been slacking the photographer that oh. uh, you're running a little late, but it's all cool. Okay. Um, I like, too, that this conversation went just like Lakeview. You started out riffing, and you were hot and ended thoughtful and uh, 
and I think people are going to like the album. If you're from so. the Bay Area, uh, I think Lakeview is a, a good album for people to check yeah. out. And also come May 3rd, Friday, May 3rd, Il Parada, 9 p.m., Filipino time. Uh, so 9.30, <laughs> right? That's a real thing. That's on the flyer sometimes. It's like uh, record release party, uh, definitely surprises. a party. It's a comedy show hosted by the great, the great legendary Tony Sparks Tony and featuring Sparks. me. Congratulations on the album out May 3rd on Blonde Medicine. On Blonde Medicine on all, all streaming sites, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, like please buy it so i don't have to go back to working nonprofits. it's a fun album i laughed a lot and uh, i loved all the san francisco in it and i really appreciate you coming to the chronicle thank you thank you thank sir you. Right. Ooh, we're shaking hands we're look shaking at that hands. all right You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Kasim Bentley. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.